friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, it is a new decade, 2020. Welcome to the new year. Welcome to the new decade, Neil. Very exciting. A whole new decade of history to be written in front of us, but we're going to look back at history because that's what we do on this podcast. So, David, I have to ask you the question, Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Neil... It's January 1265, and Simon de Montfort, the most powerful man in the Kingdom of England, has a problem. A problem he intends to solve by inventing modern democracy. Sort of. Sort of. Okay, that's interesting, David. So, I'll admit, I don't know much about 1265. Can you take us back and what was life like in England at that time? So in 1265, we're sort of at the peak of the English medieval sort of, you know, the classic image of what the Middle Ages were like in England. It's only a few decades after the death of King John Lackland of the Robin Hood stories fame, King Richard the Lionhearted, Henry III is the current King of England. But in 1265 in particular, he's no longer the most important power player in the kingdom because as part of an ongoing struggle between the crown and the barons, There have been a number of revolutions in the early 1200s between the barons who dislike the rapid centralization of royal power and increase of taxation and the kings who like both of those things. All right, David, so that paints a bit of a picture. We all know what Robin Hood was like. We can kind of imagine that time period, but things are changing a little bit because we have this dispute between the barons and the king. The barons want to pay less taxes and have more power. The king wants them to pay more taxes so he can have more power. How does Simon de Montfort become the most powerful man in England, David? So this is a big, big topic. Well, first off, you know about the Magna Carta, about King John getting defeated, by the barons in the first barons war sort of more or less and as a negotiated end to that rebellion he agrees to sign the magna carta the great charter with all of the rules for how england is going to be governed and how the king can raise taxes and very importantly for the barons the times when the king cannot raise taxes Right, so the Magna Carta really sets out the rules around governing and establishes that precedent, David, that nobody is above the law, the rule of law that we know today. Exactly. It's a crucial document for early English constitutional history. But the problem is, how do you enforce that? Because we're talking a couple decades later, 
King John is dead, his son Henry is on the throne, and it's this open question. How do you make King Henry actually obey what the Magna Carta says he has to do when there's a dispute? In theory, most of the time, King Henry is pretty good about saying, I want to rule in accordance with the rules in the charter, in the law. But what do you do when there's barons going, no, he's, well, he's screwing us. He's not playing fair. He's not living by the deal. Right. The modern answer, David, would be that we have Supreme Courts that adjudicate and decide if everyone is following the law or not. I'm guessing that's not an option here. That's not really an option that existed in the 1200s. Although, in some ways, the immediate lead up to this crisis is surprisingly uh, close to that. You see, at the beginning of the current troubles, the Second Baron's War, this period where Simon de Montfort, who's originally from France, but who is now the Earl of Leicester, is complaining that the king is doing him wrong, is not paying back the debts that he claims that the king owes to him, and instead is claiming that he owes debts to the king, and it's this whole thing, and it's a problem. And so, first, they resort to force of arms. He raises an army, the king raises an army. Everybody agrees that's not a great way to settle your problems, if only because a bunch of people are clearly going to get killed. So instead, they actually try to reach out for some outside arbitration, for a neutral third party who can decide who's in the right, who's in the wrong. Well, that sounds pretty good, David. Better than going to war, they're going to decide this through a peaceful means, hopefully. Hopefully. So they actually reach out to King Louis of France because they've both got a lot of ties in France because this is the period where the Norman kings were kings in England and they still had extensive holdings in France as well. So there's a lot of crossover between the French nobility and the English nobility. As I've mentioned, Simon de Montfort was actually born and raised in France. His father, also named Simon de Montfort, ran the Albigensian Crusade, which was a particularly brutal massacre of some mostly peaceful uh, non-Catholics living in the south of France. And he was present for that, actually. He's got extensive experience of war on the continent, which is going to become relevant later on. So they reach out to King Louis and ask for arbitration. And King Louis decides in favor of his fellow king, partially because he's not a big believer in the whole idea that kings can be bound by any kind of Magna Carta or constitutional document. Right, David. So it doesn't sound like he was really deciding the case on the merits. He was kind of worried about maybe losing some of his own power or this idea that kings were going to be not above the law. So he's going to find in favor of the king. Certainly that's how de Montfort feels about this proceeding. Even though they've had this 
outside arbitration, the Mise of Amiens, as it's called, he's not happy with the result because he feels that King Louis was biased and he complains about it and demands different satisfaction. And King Henry is like, no, that was it. We've done the arbitration. It's over. You lost. You have to pay me. Pay up. Which clearly isn't going to happen. So once again, we're back. De Montfort raises an army. Oh, it was such a good try, David. A good try to resolve this through peaceful means. It was an effort. A noble effort, even. But without a basis of common understanding of common consent in the system there's just no way that any kind of outside arbitration not backed by extraordinary power can actually convince people to change their minds and to act differently and that's the problem with the system in England as it stood then in 1263 so in 1264 the two Factions, de Montfort and the barons and the king, raise armies and march out to battle. And at the Battle of Luz, they fight each other. The king loses. De Montfort wins. He takes the king prisoner. Now he's sort of running England because, you know, like in theory, the king stole the king, but while well, he's held prisoner by one of his barons, he's not really running things in his own person in quite the same way as, you know, he might be in a better situation for himself. Wow, David, we think we have some political crises around the world right now. Imagine if the king was being held prisoner by one of his own barons. That is a political crisis. Well, the real political crisis for de Montfort isn't running the country. It's trying to run his own faction. While the dispute was just between him and the king, he was supported by most of the great barons of the land because they liked the Magna Carta, they felt that he was right on the specific merits of the case, and therefore they wanted to back him up. But now that he's running things, they're no longer quite so sure that they support him. Some of the barons are looking at him going, I had my own problems with the king. Why aren't you fixing me, giving me whatever I want? And he can't satisfy everybody. And at the same time, a bunch of the most powerful of the barons are looking at this earl going, you know, I'm as powerful as an earl or more powerful. Why can't I have the king as a prisoner, and do whatever I want. That sounds like it would be better. Why is it you? Right, so we've got a power vacuum of sorts in England. Simon de Montfort has won the battle. He has the king, but in the absence of the king, the other barons are starting to get a little bit restless. So de Montfort needs to pull off something new. He needs to convince the people of England that his rule is legitimate, that everything that's going on is good, and the traditional mechanisms that he has access to, the 
king's court and the big official ceremonies aren't going to cut it. Not for somebody who's not of the bloodline, not an heir to the throne. He needs to change things a little bit. And the good news is that he actually has, dating all the way back to the last decade, in 1254, a plan that he helped put together, which never quite worked before, which he thinks might be the key to getting that legitimacy that he feels he needs. And how, David, does he propose to confer legitimacy upon himself as a political leader? So there's already existing in England this institution known as the Parliament. And that is when the king summons all of the highest-ranking lords of the realm to come to his court so that he can tell them what he wants to do. And Parliament was listed in the Magna Carta as the body that would be specifically for taxes the check on the king. The group of people who would be empowered to look at every proposal to raise taxes that the king announced and if it didn't match up with the charter, if it wasn't valid under the Magna Carta, to say, no, we're not doing this. We're not raising these taxes. They're wrong. So de Montfort thinks that what he needs is a parliament to be summoned, to be big and successful, so that people will see that he's popular, see that he's got the will of the people behind him, but also see that he's following the laws because this body that is supposed to be the check and balance supports him. His problem is that the parliament is made up of the most powerful lords of the realm, and those are the guys who currently hate him and are jockeying for power, so they're not the best people necessarily to be summoning together right this minute. Yeah, this does seem like a bit of a problem for him, David. Does he have an idea of how to get around that? He actually does have a plan. As I said before, dating back to 1254, he'd actually proposed, and it had actually been done, that they should broaden the composition of the parliament so that it wouldn't just be the greatest lords of the realm who would be brought together, but they would also include some other members to sort of, you know, bring some more new different people in, you know, get a different kind of perspective. And his initial pitch is that the next group that they should bring in are the clergy. He's very religious, and the clergy tend to be educated so they can write everything down, which is convenient in a parliamentary setting. So he thinks that's a good idea. should definitely invite some prominent clergy to come, as well as the lords of the realm. But in 1265, that's not going to cut it. He needs more people. I like this, David. It's uh, He's expanding his base here by just bringing in new voters, basically. Uh, if you look at it in a sort of modern political 
system or a modern political idea, you know, if, if you can't win over the entrenched people, just bring in some new people. We prefer to think of it as expanding the franchise rather than gerrymandering. Potato, potato. And that's what he does. He has the bold, dare I call it revolutionary idea, that they should invite commoners, commoners from every county to come to Parliament and then bring back to their counties the decisions made by the Parliament. Of course, this leads to a new problem, which is how are we going to pick which commoners get to come? And does he have a plan for that as well, David? No, no, he really doesn't. Uh, When he actually writes down the writs, summoning everybody to Parliament, which is how it was done in those days, he just instructs the county courts, which already existed, to select two citizens to come to Parliament in addition to anybody who might be living there who's being summoned because they're a great lord who Montfort likes enough to want to come to his parliament. So he's kind of passing the buck off to the courts to figure out how to pick these people. And the courts come up with their own local solutions, but for most of them, they turn to a system that's already entrenched on a local level in English society. The system of elections which is kind of a crazy way to pick people when you think about it. So they're going to elect their people to go to this parliament. David, this is starting to sound a lot like the way it works today. It's very, very influential, a very influential moment in the development of English democracy. It's not the first time that there have been elected members at parliaments. As I've mentioned, In earlier parliaments, there have been times when the kings have looked to broaden the assembly a little bit, sometimes because the king wants to pack it a little bit when the nobles have not been on his side. And elections are just such a already entrenched part of English society at the local level for very local ways of selecting people for positions that it sort of makes sense, you know, when you've got to pick somebody to do this job, you're going to elect them. But this is really where it's all coming together. They're going to be elected systematically. They're going to represent a geographical area. There's going to be a specific set number of them. And the vast, vast majority of the commoners sent to de Montfort's parliament are going to be elected and are going to represent, in theory at least, the will of the people of the county that sent them to London for this parliament. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, David, that the barons wanted to grab more power for themselves, but that ended up being the reason that Simon de Montfort extends the power out to the common people and ends up actually diverting this power away from the barons and in the long run really changing how power is held in political societies in the West. In the very long run, yes. The very long run. Yes. We take a long-term view on this podcast, David. 
Sometimes. Sometimes we take a long-term <laughs> view. Of course, if you were de Montfort in 1265 specifically, a short-term view focusing on keeping the prince, Prince Edward, locked up would probably have served you better than all of these political machinations put together. Oh, we forgot about the prince. A classic mistake, David. How does it end for Simon de Montfort? Badly. So in 1266, Prince Edward escapes, rallies a new army of royalists to oppose these barons who have always been honestly kind of a minority faction. De Montfort rides out to try and stop him. There's some dramatic maneuvering. Prince Edward really proves his military skills here for the first time, but for de Montfort, it's not a good campaign at all. All the way through, things keep getting worse. And at the final Battle of Evesham, well, I'll let the medieval chronicler who first wrote of it sum it up for me. He called it the Massacre of Evesham. For battle, it was none. Ooh, that's not a good report to hear if you're on the losing side of the massacre, David. It was not good to be... Simon de Montfort, who dies in battle, specifically targeted, actually, by some of Edward's knights who are told off specifically as a group of 11 to go and hunt de Montfort down and kill him personally so that he doesn't escape. Another one of Edward's innovations. Prince Edward will go on to be King Edward I, Hammer of the Welsh, Hammer of the Scots, started the Hundred Years' War, sort of-ish. Really, it was more Edward III who started that, but he can take a bit of credit anyway. So, he's a big deal in English history, but perhaps the biggest deal about King Edward's reign in the long run in English history isn't his crushing the Welsh or the Scots or any of the other bold political and military maneuvering that he will do over his decades-long reign. It's that in 1295, when he himself is faced with an intransigent parliament that doesn't want to raise taxes, he'll remember de Montfort's parliament, and he will do the same trick. Send out writs asking that counties elect commoners to come and represent them at the parliament so that he'll have the votes to outweigh the barons and get his taxes passed. And that will be the precedent that really gets rolling. The concept of an elected representative parliament controlling the taxation of the nation, which is the core of the modern English system of democracy. And there you have it, David. In the short term, it might have ended in a massacre, but in the long term, it ended in democracy. Thanks for telling us this story. Always happy to. David, I can't believe we got through an entire episode and we haven't talked about how this relates to Mexit. Meghan and Harry leaving the British royal family. I mean... But that's a story for another day. I can see some links. Absolutely, there are some links, David. Very intriguing stuff happening with the royal family to this very day. But we're going to move on to the next part of our podcast, which we always like to end with a game of sorts, David. 
And you may be aware that happening right now, it's probably over by the time people are listening to this, but ongoing is the Jeopardy greatest of all time tournament. Quite exciting. They've got the three greatest Jeopardy players of all time in. They're going to decide who is the GOAT. So David, I thought we'd play a little Jeopardy. We've done this before on the podcast. Uh, We have some history Jeopardy categories for you. Are you ready to play Jeopardy? Let's do it, Alex. All right. The categories are the 1970s, a potpourri of history, early America, and world history. Which category would you like, David? Let's start with a potpourri of history. All right. And your clues are 200, 400, 600, 800, or 1,000. Let's start big, Neil. Give me a thousand. All right. The answer for $1,000. This European banking dynasty was founded by a man named Meyer Amschel. What is the Rothschilds? Correct, David. $1,000 for you. Pick another category. All right. How about world history? World history and what dollar value would you like, David? Gotta stay on top. Gotta stay with a thousand. I like this. This is the James Holzhauer approach, being very aggressive, going for those big prizes early for a thousand dollars. In eighteen nineteen, Sir Stamford Raffles of this company established a post at Singapore Harbor for Britain. What is the East India Company? Correct, David. The British East India Company. That's two thousand dollars. Two categories left. You have early America or the 1970s. I'll go with early America for a thousand, Neil. All right, taking the earlier one here. In June 1579, this British captain sailed into a harbor on the west coast. San Franciscans say it was their bay. Who is James Cook? A very good guess, David, but we were looking for Sir Francis Drake. That'll cost you $1,000. So with $1,000, one category left here, the 1970s, what clue would you like? I'm going to stay on top. Give me the 1000 Neil. David, this is a daily double. How much would you like to wager? Oh, man. Oh, man. I'll wager 500 All right, $500 in the category of the 1970s. This National Liberation Front overthrew Nicaragua's Somoza regime. Who are the Sandinistas? David, I'm so impressed you got that. You have $1,500 going into Final Jeopardy. And the Final Jeopardy category, David, this is coming up on the weekend. So it's appropriate. And it is a history question here. The category is the Super Bowl. All right. How much would you like to wager? I'm going all in, Neil. 1500 A bold move, David. I know you know a lot of Super Bowl history, don't you? We'll find out. David, it's the only current NFC team that has never played in the Super Bowl. Who are the Cleveland Browns, Neil? Oh, a great guess, David. And you are correct that the Cleveland Browns have never played in a Super Bowl. Unfortunately, they play in the AFC. The only NFC team that hasn't played in the Super Bowl would be the Detroit Lions. And David, the Detroit Lions are not playing in the Super Bowl this year either. Thanks for playing along, David. 
always happy to play along from the very bottom to the very top and back again. And thanks for listening. 